Hey guys, welcome back to Murderous Intention Podcast. Today we're going to go with part two of John Wayne Gacy, um, the killer clown. And we're going to go ahead and just jump right in and continue where we left off. So, when we previously was talking, we were at the point where he was already, you know, doing the whole um, pogo, the clown when he was, you know, in a happy clown mood, and then Patches the Clown when he was more serious, and he was inter- interacting that with, you know, regressing it uh, for children in charity events, political functions, and um, just, you know, whatnot. Um, so, much of PDM's workplace, workforce, um, which what stand for um, paint decorative painting decorating and maintenance um, he normally would hire like high school students and younger men um, so Gacy would often pro- position proposition his workers for sex or insist on a sexual favor in return um, for acts such as lending his vehicle, financially, financial assistance, and per, or promotions. Um, so Gacy was your all-around jerk of a boss. Gacy also claimed to own guns, once telling an employee, Do you know how easy it would be to get one of my guns and kill you? And how easy it would be to get rid of the body? Which... I'm sorry, if my boss was to tell me that, I would be creeped the heck out, and I will leave. But, that's nor here, nor there, you know. In 1973, Gacy and a teenage employee traveled to Florida to view a property Gacy had purchased. On the first night in Florida, Gacy raped the employee in their hotel room. After returning to Chicago, this employee drove to Gacy's house and beat him in his yard. Gacy told his wife he had been attacked for refusing to pay him for poor quality painting work. Yeah, I wouldn't have told my wife either what the hell I did down in Florida. But thank God I'm not in that situation and I don't do things like that. Um, so in May 1975, Plus, on that note, that employee, he had the ball. He had balls. Like, I, I, I give him that, you know. He kicked his ass in his own backyard. <laughs> so, tops to you, man. Um, in May 1975, like I was saying, Gacy hired a 15-year-old named Anthony Antonucci. Um, two months later, he went to Antonucci's house, knowing the youth had injured his foot in an accident the previous day. The two drank a bottle of wine, then watched a heterosexual stag film, before Gacy wrestled Antonucci to the floor and cuffed his hands behind his back. One cuff was loose, and Antonucci freed his arm while Gacy was out of the room. When Gacy returned, Antonisi, which was a high school wrestler, pounced upon him and wrestled Gacy to the floor, obtaining obtained possession of the handcuff key and cuffed Gacy's hands 
behind his back. At first, Gacy threatened Antonucci, then calmed down and promised to leave if he would remove the handcuffs. Antonucci agreed and Gacy left. Antonucci later recalled that Gacy told him, not only are you the only one who got the hang got out of the handcuffs, but you also got them on me. So that kind of makes it scary because it's like, how many more people did he did be- did he do this to before he did it to him? You know, that would be my my thing. On July twenty sixth, nineteen seventy six, Gacy picked up. Um, 18 years old David Cram as he hitchhiked on Elston Ave Gacy offered him a job with PDM and he began work the same evening on August 21st Cram moved into his house the next day Cram and Gacy had several drinks to celebrate his 19th birthday and Gacy dressed as Pogo Gacy conned Cram into donning handcuffs his wrists cuffed in the front of his body rather than behind. He swung Cram around while holding the chain, linking the cuff, linking the cuffs, then said he intended to rape him. Cram kicked Gacy in the face and freed himself from the handcuffs. A month later, Gacy appeared at Cram's bedroom door intending to rape him, saying, Dave, you don't know who I am. Maybe it would be good if you give me what I want. Cram resisted, straddling Gacy, who left the bathroom, bedroom, stating, You ain't no fun. Cram moved out on October 5th and left PDM. Although he did periodically work for Gacy over the following two years, shortly after Cram moved out of Gacy's house, another employee named Michael Rossi, of 18 years old, had moved in. Rossi had worked with PDM since May 1976. He lived with Gacy until April 1977, and Rossi sometimes assisted Gacy in clowning at like grand openings for businesses, Gacy as Pogo and Rossi as Patches. So Gacy with First Lady Ros- Rosalind Carter, um, on May 6, 1978, uh, six years after his first murder and seven months before his final arrest, there's actually a picture of them too. Um, and I, it just it just makes me be like, what the friend? Like, really? Wow. So Gacy also entered um, local Democratic Party politics initially offering use for employees to clean party headquarters at no charge. He was rewarded for his community service with an appointment to serve on the Norwood Park Township Street Light Lightning Community, subsequently earning the title the precinct captain. And then in 1975, Gacy was appointed director of Chicago's annual Polish Constitution Day Parade. And in, in this event, he would supervise until 1978. Through his work with the parade, Gacy met and was photographed, like I said, with the First Lady. Um, and the event later became an embarrassment 
to the United States Secret Service. Um, so in the picture um, that I was discussing, Gacy is wearing an S pin, indicating a person given special clearance. Um, and that's kind of scary now knowing the whole like background story is that yeah we get special clearance to someone who's at, you know who who was a serial rapist and a serial murderer well serial killer yeah not cool um so Gacy murdered at least 33 men and boys and buried 26 of them in the crawl space of his house his victims included people he knew and random, random individuals um, that he lured from Greyhound bus stations, bug house squares, and simply off the streets with the promise of a job with PDM and offering of a drink and or drugs um, and sometimes money for sex. Some victims were grabbed by force, others were conned to believe in Gacy, who often carried a sheriff badge and had spotlights on his black Oldsmobile was a police officer so he would he would find ways to get them to come in um, Gacy usually lured a, a lone victim to his house although no more although on more than one occasion Gacy also had what he called doubles two victims killed in the same evening um, inside Gacy's house he usually models Modus apparandus um, was to ply the youth with drinks, drugs, and general gain of trust. Um, he would then produce a pair of handcuffs to show a magic trick, sometimes as part of a clowning routine. He typically cuffed his one hand behind his back. Then, like, spontaneously, he would, like, release himself with the key which he hid between his fingers. He then offered to show his intended victim how to release himself from the handcuffs with his victims now, you know, um, handcuffed and unable to free themselves. Train. So Gacy would go and, you know, after he got them where they're handcuffed and they're trying to figure out how do I get myself free and they can't free themselves, he would go and tell them he's like well the trick to getting out is you have to have the key and Gacy referred to this act of restraining his victims as the handcuff trick it's not really a trick dude you handcuff somebody and you took the freaking key away from them you know you you, you used it to your advantage in my opinion but whatever um, so having restrained his victims, Gacy would proceed to rape and torture his captives. He frequently began by sitting on or straddling himself above the victim's chest before forcing his victim to fellatiate him. Um, so Gacy then uh, would inflict acts of torture, including burning cigars, making his captive imitate a horse, as he sat on their back and pulled makeshift reins around their necks, violating with foreign objects such as dildos and 
prescription bottles after he had sodomized his captive um, to immobilize his captive's legs before engaging in acts of torture. Gacy frequently would um, basically handcuff or tie down their legs um, or well their ankles to a two by four that had handcuffs attached at each end um, and act inspired by the Houston mass murders. He is also known to have verbally taunt many of his victims throughout their continued abuse and to have dragged or forced several victims to crawl into his bathroom where he partly drowned them in the bathtub before repeatedly reviving them, enabling them him to continue his prolonged assault. An instance when a victim had pleaded to be killed as opposed to continuing to endure the torture, Gacy would make a statement to the effect that, you know, he would kill his victims when he wanted, you know, and that's that's just like off because it's like he's not pleading, just like saying, just kill me, you know, just just kill me. Don't do this anymore to me. Just, just take me out of my misery. You know? And I feel bad for those guys, you know? Um, so Gacy typically murdered his victims by placing a rope tourniquet around their necks before progressively tightening the rope with a hammer handle. He referred to this act as the rope trick. Once again, it's not a rope trick, dude. Like, seriously. You know? strangulation bluntly you know like stop trying to make it seem like ooh look what I do you know um and he frequently informed his captives this is the last trick in at least one instance he had read part of the palms 23 as he tightened the rope around his victim's necks and occasionally the victim had convulsed for an hour or two before dying, although several victims died by a suffoca- a suffocation from cloth gags stuffed deep into their throat, except his for his two final victims who were murdered between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. After death, Gacy usually stored the victims' bodies under his bed for up to 24 hours before burying his victims in the crawl space where he periodically poured quicklime to hasten the decomposition of the victims. Some victims' bodies were taken to his garage and embalmed there before their burial. Um, So, one of the young men is Timothy McCoy. Um, Gacy's first known murder occurred on January 3rd, 1972, and according to Gacy's later account, following a family party on the evening of January 2nd, he decided to drive to the Civic Center in the Loop um, to view a display of ice sculptures in the early hours of the following mornings, and he then lowered uh, 16-year-old Timothy Jack McCoy from the Chicago Greyhound bus trip terminal into his car. McCoy returned from a Christmas vacation 
um, in Michigan to his father's home in Omaha, Nebraska. Gacy took McCoy on a sightseeing tour of Chicago and then drove him to his house with the promise that he would spend the night and be driven back to the station at, in time to catch the bus. Before McCoy's identification, he was known simply as the Greyhound Busboy. So Gacy claimed he woke up early the following morning to find McCoy standing in his bedroom door with a kitchen knife in his hand. He then jumped from his bed and McCoy raised both arms in a gesture of surrendered, tilting the knife upwards and accidentally cutting Gacy's forearm. Gacy twisted the knife from McCoy's wrist, banging his head against the bedroom wall, kicking him against his wardrobe and walked towards him. McCoy then kicked Gacy in the stomach, doubled him over. Gacy then grabbed McCoy, shouting, I can't say this, <laughs> but he would heat and the saying, Motherfucker, I'll kill you. He then wrestled McCoy to the floor and stabbed him repeatedly in the chest as he straddled him. As McCoy lay dying, Gacy claimed he washed the, he washed the, knife in his bathroom then went to his kitchen and saw an open carton of eggs and a slab of unsliced bacon on the kitchen table with McCoy um so McCoy had also set the table for two he had walked into Gacy's room to wake him while absent-mindedly carrying the kitchen knife in his hand Gacy buried McCoy McCoy in his crawl space and later covered his grave with a layer of concrete. In the interview several years after his arrest, Gacy said that immediately after killing McCoy, he felt totally drained, yet noted that as he stabbed McCoy and as he listened to the regulation and gaps of air, that he had experienced a mind-numbing orgasm. He added, that's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill. I don't see that to be true. Like, can someone be the ultimate thrill? So, um, Gacy then states that his second time he committed murder, he was, it was around January 1974. Um, this victim remains unidentified till to this day. Gacy sh strangled him and then placed his body in his closet before burial. He later, later stated that the body fluids leaked from the victim's mouth and nose, staining his carpet. As a result, Gacy regularly stopped cloth rags, the victim's underwear, and a sock into the mouth of the subsequent victim to prevent such leaking from occurring. Um, which is like horrible. So John Buck Carrick I cannot say Buckovich Um so on June July thirty first, nineteen seventy five, John Buckovich an 18-year-old PDM employee from Landlord disappeared 
His car was parked near the corner of Sheridan and Lawrence with his jacket and wallet inside and the keys still in the ignition. The day before his disappearance, John was confronted had confronted Gacy over two weeks outstanding back pay. Bukovic's father, a Yugoslavian immigrant, called Gacy, telling he was happy to help search for his son, but was sorry Bukovic had ran away. He questioned. Then he was questioned by police. Gacy said Bukovic and two friends had arrived at his house demanding overdue payment, but they had reached a compromise, and all three had left. Over the following three years. Buckwich parents called the police more than a hundred times, urging them to investigate Gacy further. Gacy later admitted to encountering Buckwich ex um, exiting his car at the corner of West Lawrence, Lawrence Avenue, waving to attract his attention. According to Gacy, John approached his car stating, I want to talk to you. Gacy invited John into his car, then invited him back to his house. Ostensibly, I can't talk today. To settle the issue of his overdue wages, at at his home, Gacy offered John a drink, and then he conned him into allowing his wrist to be cuffed behind his back. Gacy later confessed to having sat on the kid's chest for a while before he strangled him. He stole. John's body in his garage, intending to bury the body later in the crawl space. When his wife and stepdaughter returned home earlier than expected, Gacy buried John's body under the concrete floor in the tool room extension of his garage in a space where he had initially intended to dig a drain tile. So, in, in addition to being being the year his business expanded, Gacy freely admitted that 1975 was also when he began to increase the frequency of his excursions with sex um, for sex with young males. Um, he often referred to these um, moments as cruising. Gacy committed most of his murders between 1976 and 1978, as he largely lived alone following his divorce. He later referred to these as his cruising years. That's disgusting. Although Gacy remained um, gregarious and civic-minded, several neighbors noticed erratic changes in his behavior after his 1976 divorce. This included seeing him keeping company with young males hearing his car arrive and depart in the early hours of the morning, or seeing lights in his house switch on and off in the early hours. One neighbor later recalled, recollected that for several years the sounds of muffled high-pitched screams, shouting, and crying were repe had repeatedly awoken her and her son in the early morning hours. She identified the sound as um, emanating that it was yeah I know what the word is and I can't say it, but it was coming from um, the house next to theirs on West Som Somerdale Avenue which was Casey's house yeah
Um, one month after his divorce was finalized, Gacy abducted and murdered 18 years old Daryl Sampson. He was last seen alive in Chicago on April 6, 1976. Gacy buried him under the dining room with a section of cloth lodged in his throat. Five weeks later, on the afternoon of May 14th, 15 years old Randall Reffitt disappeared shortly after returning to his uptown home from a dental appointment. He was last seen by his grandmother later that afternoon, hours after Raffitt. Raffitt was last seen by his family, 14 years old Samuel Stapleton vanished as he walked home from his sister's apartment. He and Raffitt were close acquaintances. Both were buried together in the crawl space and investigators believe the two were murdered the same evening. Might have been when he does his deviling. On June 3rd, Gacy killed a 17-year-old Lakeview teenager named Michael Bonin. He disappeared while traveling from Chicago to Wackingen? Wackingen? Gacy strangled Bonin, Bonin um, with a ligature and buried him under the spare bedroom. Ten days later, Gacy murdered a 16-year-old uptown youth named William Carl and buried him in a common grave in the crawl space. Carol seemed to have been the first of four victims known to have seen have been murdered between June 13th and August 6th of 1976. Three were both 16, three were both 16 and 17 years old and one unidentified murder victim appears to have been an adult. On August 5th, a 16-year-old Minnesota youth named James Hankinson is last seen to have been to have phoned his family, possibly from Gacy's house. Hankinson died of suffocation. His body was buried in the crawl space beneath the body of a beneath the body of 17-year-old Bentonville youth named Rick Johnston, who was last seen alive on August 6th. Gacy is thought to have murdered two further unidentified males between August and October 1976. On October 24th, Gacy abducted and killed teenage friends Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. The two were last seen outside the restaurant on Clark Street in Chicago. Two days later, a, a 19 years old construction worker William Bundy disappeared after informing his family he was to attend a party. Bundy died of suffocation. Gacy buried the body beneath his master's bedroom. He had worked for Gacy. Between November and December of 1976, Gacy murdered a 21-year-old man named Francis Alexander. His last contact with his family was a phone call to his mom, his mother. Made sometime in November, Alexandra was buried in the crawl space be directly beneath the room Gacy used as his office. In December 1976, another PDM employee, 17-year-old Gregory Gazik, disappeared. His girlfriend last saw him outside her house after he had driven her home following a date. Gazik had worked for PDM. 
for less than three weeks before he disappeared. He had informed his family that Gacy had him dig trenches for some kind of drain tiles in his crawl space. Gossett's car was later found abandoned in Niles. His parents and older sister, Eugenia, contacted Gacy about Gossett's disappearance. Gacy claimed that he had ran away from home, having indicated before that he wished to do so. Gacy also claimed to have received an answer machine message from Gossett shortly after he had disappeared. When he when asked if he could play back the message to Gazik's parents, Gacy said he had erased it. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. On January 20, 1977, Gacy lured 19 years old John Six to his house on the pretext of buying his Plymouth satellite. Sorry, there was a weird car just passed by. He later confessed to strangling Six in his square, spare bedroom, claiming Rossi was asleep in the house the following morning. Gacy later sold the car to Rossi for $300. Conveniently, right? On March 15th, a 20-year-old Michigan native named John Prestige disappeared two months later. Prestige was last seen leaving a near Northside restaurant. He was buried in the crawl space above the body of Francis Alexander. Shortly before his disappearance, Prestige had mentioned he had obtained work with a local contractor. Gacy murdered one additional unidentified youth and buried him in the crawl space in the spring or early summer of 1977. The exact time of this murder is unknown. On July 5th, Gacy killed a 19 years old from Crystal Lake, Matthew Bowman. Bowman's mother last saw him at, at a suburban train station. He had intended to travel to Harwood Heights for a scheduled court appointment regarding an unpaid parking ticket. The following month, Rossi was arrested for stealing gasoline while driving six car. The gas station attendant noted the, st- the license plate and police traced the car to Gacy's house. When questioned, Gacy told officers that Zink had sold the car to him in February, saying he needed money to leave town. A check of the VIN confirmed the car had belonged to Zink. The police did not pressure the- pursue the matter further, although they did inform Zink's mother that her son had sold his car. By the end of 1977, it is known Gacy had murdered six more younger young men between the ages of 16 and 21. The first of these victims were 18 years old Robert Gilroy, the son of Chicago Police Sergeant, last seen alive on September 15th. Gilroy lived just four blocks from Gacy's house. He was murdered and buried in the crawl space. On September 12th, Gacy had flown to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to supervise a remodeling project and did not return to Chicago until September 16th. Because Gacy is known to have been in another state at the time Gilroy was last seen, this is cited to support Gacy's claim of assistance from one or more accomplices in 
several homicides. Ten days after Gilroy was last seen, 19-year-old former U.S. Marine John Mowry disappeared after leaving his mother's house to walk to his apartment. Gacy strangled Mowry and buried his body beneath the master bedroom. On October 17, 21 years old Minnesota native Russell Nelson disappeared. He was last seen outside a Chicago bar. Nelson was looking for contracting work. Gacy murdered him and buried him beneath the guest house, the guest bedroom. Less than four weeks later, Gacy murdered a 16 years old Kalamazoo teenager named Robert Wrench and buried him in the crawl space. On November 18th, 20 years old, father of one, Tommy Bowling, disappeared after leaving a Chicago bar. Three weeks after the murder of Tommy Bowling, on December 9th, a 19 years old U.S. Marine, David Talsamon, disappeared after informing his mother he was to attend a rock concert in Hammond, New, um, Indiana. Gacy strangled Cosma and with a ligature and buried him in the crossbase close to the body of John Morey. On December 30, Gacy abducted 19 years old student Robert Donnelly from a Chicago bus stop at gunpoint. Gacy drove him to his house where he raped, tortured, and repeatedly dunked Donnelly's head into a bathtub until he passed out. Gacy taunted him with the statement such as, aren't we playing playing fun games tonight? Donnelly later testified at Gacy's trial that he was in such pain that he asked Gacy to kill him. Gacy replied, I'm getting around to it. After several hours, Gacy drove Donnelly to his workplace and released him, warning him that if he complained to the police, they would not believe him. Donnelly reported the assault and police questioned Gacy on January 6, 1978. Gacy admitted to having had a sex-slave relationship with Donnelly, but insisted everything was consensual, adding that he did, didn't pay the kid the money he had promised him. The police beat, believed him and no, file, no charges were filed. The following month, Gacy killed 19 years old William Kindred, who disappeared on February 16th after telling his fiance, who knew Gacy, that he would was to spend the evening in a bar. Kindred was the final victim of Gacy, buried in the cross space. On March 21st, Gacy lured 26 years old Jeffrey Rigno into his car. Shortly after Rigno entered the car, Gacy chloroformed him and drove him to his house where his arms and head were restrained in a pillow, in a pillory device affixed to the ceiling and his feet locked into another device. Gacy explained to Rigno that he had complete control over him and that he intended to do whatever he wanted to and when he wanted and how he wanted. He then raped and tortured Rigno with various instruments including light candles, whips, and repeatedly chloroformed him into unconsciousness. Gacy then drove Rigno to 
Chicago's Lincoln Park where he was dumped unconscious but alive. Rignall managed to stagger to his girlfriend's apartment. Police were informed of the assault but did not investigate Gacy. Rignall was able to recall through the haze of that night the Oldsmobile, the Kennedy Expressway, and particularly Side Street. He and two friends staked out the Cumberland exit of the expressway in April and in in April Rignall saw the Oldsmobile which he and his friends followed to 8213 West Somerdale. Police obtained an arrest warrant and Gacy was arrested on July 15th. He faced trial for battery against Randall. I mean Rignall. In so by 1978, the crawl space had no room for further bodies. Gacy later confessed to police that he considered slowing body, storing bodies in his attic intent initially, but had been worried about complications arising from leakage. Therefore, he chose to dispose of his victims off the I-55 I bridge into the Dust Plains River. Gacy stated he had thrown five bodies into the river in 1978, one of which he believed had landed on a passing barge. barge. Only four bodies were ever found. The first known victim thrown from the I-55 bridge into the Des Plaines River was 20 years old Timothy Ulrich. He was murdered in mid-June after leaving his Dover Street apartment to purchase cigarettes. Shortly before his disappearance, Oric, Oric, or Oric, whichever, I'm sorry, Timothy, um, had told his roommates a contractor on the northwest side had offered him a job. On November 4th, Gacy killed 19-year-old Frank Landigan. His naked body was found through an inlet in the Dust Plains River by two duck hunters in the tenor hall on November 12th. On November 24th, a 20 years old Elwood Park resident, James Mazar, disappeared after sharing Thanksgiving dinner with his family. Mazar had informed his sister the day prior to his disappearance that he was working in the construction industry and doing all right. He was last seen alive walking in the direction of Buckhouse Square carrying a suitcase. So it's sad because it's like he was excited to know that um, he was going to be working and he was going to be doing okay. You know, he thought he had everything going, you know, and then to be last seen, you know, walking down um, the street and carrying his suitcase, you know, saying, I got a construction job. I'm going to make it. I'm going to do something with my life. And then, sadly, to be murdered. And then tossed away like yesterday's trash. That's just awful, you know. Sadly, that's not the last one. Um, On the afternoon of December 11th, 1978, Gacy visited the Nissan Pharmacy in Des Plaines to discuss potential remodeling deal with the store owner, Phil 
Torf, while he was within earshot of a 15 years old part-time employee, Robert Peast, um, Gacy mentioned his firm often hired young teenage boys at, at a starting wage of $5 per hour, almost double the pay Peast um, earned at the pharmacy. So shortly after Gacy left the pharmacy, Peace's mother arrived at the store to drive her son home for the fa- so the family could celebrate her birthday together. Peace asked his mother to wait, adding that some contractor wants to talk to me about a job. He left the store at 9 p.m., promising to return shortly. Unfortunately, that would not happen he would not be able to celebrate his mom's birthday because he was murdered shortly after 10 p.m. in Gacy's house. Gacy would later state that at his house he asked Peace whether there was anything he wouldn't do for the right price to which Presac replied that he did not mind working hard but that's not what Gacy had in mind. So in response, Gacy told him, that's good money. Could be earned by hustling. And although Peace was demised, Gacy then dumped Peace into a domed he not dumped. He duped Peace into the domed handcuffs before saying, I'm going to rape you and you can't do anything about it. As Peace began weeping, he also stated that he had placed the rope around Peace's neck. Neck. The boy was crying and he, and he was scared. I would be too. Gacy admitted to having received a phone call from a business acquaintance as Peace lay dying, suffocating in his bedroom floor. When Peace failed to return, his family filed a missing persons report with the Des Plains Police. Torf named Gacy as the contractor Peace had most likely left to the store to talk to about a job. Lieutenant Joseph Kozinski, whose son attended Maine West High School, like Peace, chose to investigate Gacy further. I mean, Gacy further. Having spoke to Peace's mother on the morning of December 12th, Kazansky became convinced Peace had not run away from home. A routine check on Gacy's criminal background revealed that he had an outstanding battery charge against him in Chicago, and he had served a prison sentence in Iowa for sodomy of a 15-year-old boy. Kazansky and two Des Plaines police officers visited Gacy at his house the following evening. Gacy indicated he had seen two youths walking working at the pharmacy and that he had asked one of them whom he believed to be peace whether there were any remodeling materials behind the store he was adamant however that he had not offered peace a job he had only returned to the pharmacy shortly after 8 p.m as he had left his appointment book at the store gacy promised to come to the station later that evening to make a statement confirming this, indicating he was unable to do so at the moment as his uncle had just died. When questioned as to how soon he could come to the p- 
police station. He responded, You guys are very rude. Don't you have any respect for the dead? At 3.20 a.m., Gacy arrived at the police station, covered in mud, claiming he had been involved in a car accident. On returning to the police station later that day, Gacy denied any involvement in Peace's disappearance and repeatedly repeated that he had not offered him a job. When asked why he had returned to the pharmacy, Gacy reiterated that he had done so. He had done so in response to a phone call from Tarf informing him he had left his appointment book at the store. Detectives already spoke to Tarf, who denied calling Gacy. At the request of detectives, Gacy prepared a written statement detailing his movements on December 11th. So suspecting that Gacy might be holding peace against his will at his house, the Des Plaines police obtained a warrant to search Gacy's house on December 13th. This search of Gacy's property revealed several suspicious items, several, including several police badges and a 6mm Prevetta starter pistol inside a office drawer and a syringe and hypodermic needle inside a cabinet in Gacy's bathroom. Investigators also found handcuffs, several books of homosexuality and pederastry with titles such as The Great White Swallow, The Pretty Boys Must Die, and seven pornograph- pornographic films capsuled in amyl nitrate and an 18-inch <clears throat> dildo in Gacy's bedroom and a 39 2x4 with two holes drilled into each end, bottles of Valium and a trophy and several driver's license were found in northwest bedroom in the northwest bedroom a blue hooded parka was found on top of a toolbox inside the laundry room and underwear too small to fit Casey was located inside the bathroom closet in the northwest bedroom investigators found a class of 1975 Maine West High School ring engraved with the initials JAS Investigators also recovered a Neeson Phillip, I mean pharmacy photo receipt from a trash can alongside a 36-inch section of nylon rope. So the Des Police, Des, Des Plains Police confiscated Gacy's Oldsmobile and other PDM work vehicles. Police assigned two assigned two two-men surveillance teams to monitor Gacy on the rotational 12-hour basis as they continued their investigations into the, his background and potential involvement in Peace's disappearance. These surveillance teams consistent of officers Mike Albert and David Hatchmeister and Ronald Robertson and Robert Schultz. The following day, investigators received a phone call from Michael Rossi, who informed the investigators of Gregory Godzik's disappearance and the fact that another PDM employee, Charles Hatula, had been found drowned in the Illinois River earlier that year. On December 15, Des Police Plains investigators obtained further details of Gacy's battery charge, learning the com- compliant the complainant 
Jeffrey Rignall had reported that Gacy had lured him into his car, then chloroformed, raped, and tortured him before dumping him with with sever, sever, bleh, with severe chest and facial burns and rectal bleeding in Lincoln Park the following morning. In an interview with Gacy's former wife the same day, they learned of the disappearance of John Bookerich. The same day, the main West High School ring was traced to John Allen Snitz. An interview with Snitz's mother revealed that several times, several items from her son's apartment were also missing, including a Motorola TV set. By December 16, Gacy had become affamable with the surveillance detectives, regularly inviting them to join him for meals in restaurants and occasionally for drinks in a bar or at his house and repeatedly denied that he had anything to do with Peace's disappearance and accused the officers of harassing him because he, of his political connections or because of his recreational drug use, knowing these officers were unlikely to arrest him on anything trivial. He taunted them by floating traffic laws and succeeded in losing his pursuers more than once. That afternoon, Cram consisted to a police interview and in which he described Gacy's hard-working lifestyle and open-minded attitude about sex between men. Cram also revealed that because of his poor timekeeping, Gacy had once given him a watch, explaining he got it from a dead person. Investigators conducted a formal interview with Rossi on December 17th. He informed Gacy he had sold six six, uh, vehicles to him, explaining that he had bought the car from six because he needed money to move to California. A further examination of Gacy's Oldsmobile was conducted on this date. In the course of examination, examining the truck of the car, investigators discovered a small cluster of fibers they suspected to be human hair. That evening, officers conducted a test using three trained German shepherds, search dogs, to determine whether peace had been presented present in any of Gacy's vehicle. One dog approached Gacy's Oldsmobile and lay, and lay on the passenger seat in what the dog handler informed the investigator was deaf reaction indicating Peace body had been present in the vehicle. That evening, Gacy invited detectives Albert and Hatchmeister to a restaurant for a meal. In the early hours of December 18th, he invited them into another restaurant where, over breakfast, he talked about his business, his marriage, and his activities as a registered clown. At one point during the conversation, Gacy remarked, You know... Clowns can get away with murder. <laughs> Not for long, homeboy. So then on December 18th, Gacy ha- was beginning to display signs of strain from the consistent surveillance. He was unshaved, looked tired, appeared anxious, and was drinking heavily. That afternoon, he drove to his lawyer's office to prepare a 750 dollars civil suit against the 
Des Plaines police demanded that they cease their surveillance. The same day, the serial number of the Nissan pharmacy photo receipt found in Gacy's kitchen was traced to 17 years old Kimberly Byers, a colleague of peace at the Nissan pharmacy. Byers admitted that when contacted in person the following day, she had worn the jacket on December 11th to shield herself from the code as the register was next to the door. She had placed the receipt in the Parker pocket just before she gave the coat to Peace as he left the store, claiming a contractor wanted to speak with him. The statement contradicted Gacy's previous statements that he had no contact with Robert Priest on the evening of December 11th. So, I'm going to leave you here, and when we get back for part three, we're going to go over the second search warrant and his confession to everything. I hope you guys enjoy this part two, and I'll see you guys for part three. If you guys want, you guys can leave us a message on Murderous Intention 21 at gmail.com, or you could follow us on Instagram at Murderous Intention Podcast. See you guys soon. Bye.